Hi, I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Welcome to another episode. Thanks for being here, everybody. I'm sitting in an RV, uh, in uh, my friend's RV, where they have outfitted the bedroom as the leopard lounge, and it's just covered in leopard print. Gotta say, I'm a huge fan. I just, uh, true story, bought leopard print Crocs which may be my favorite purchase I've ever made of all time. Um, I've, I've, I've come to the understanding that Crocs are very uh, useful in van life. I have this thing where when I'm at a campsite with a fire, I always I hate sitting down. Does anyone else have this problem? I can't sit like a normal person on a chair I mean, I know that's not a natural thing for our bodies to do, but I feel like I have some strange, like, I just can't do it. It feels so uncomfortable. And so I always, no matter where I am at a restaurant, like a fine dining establishment, I will always put at least one of my legs up on the chair, like in a cross-legged position. If I'm a little bit less self-conscious, I'll just put my knee up entirely or both of them. Um... But yeah, I just can't sit like a normal person. It's impossible. When I'm at my desk, I like swing my leg up onto the desk and like type in between my legs. I'm a strange monkey human. Um, but at a, uh, a campfire, it's the same. I always cross my legs in the camping chair. And uh, it's problematic to be barefoot because there are always mosquitoes. So I can't just like wear flip flops and kick them off and cross my legs. Um, or I wear like my Uggs, for example, but those are really thick and uncomfortable and then I have to take them off to cross my legs. Isn't this a fascinating intro to a podcast, you guys? Uh, anyway, I figured like I need a slip on shoe, uh, that I can wear socks with and then that solves my problem because I can wear a shoe, but I can wear socks. So I'm covered from the mosquitoes and I can cross my legs. Plus they're really good when we go swimming in rivers use the little strap. You don't have to like kill your feet on the sharp rock. So all that to say, I am a croc owner and I figured I would just buy the most ridiculous crocs I could find, which were leopard print. But then they got here and I'm like, these aren't that bad. They're kind of (laughs) cool. Like I'm not as mortified to wear these as I thought I would be. So for those of you that follow me on Instagram, you probably saw a very funny photo of me in leopard crocs in the leopard RV lounge, surrounded by leopard print. Anyway, that is my life. Um, 
I am very excited about today's episode. I recorded this back in Colorado before I left, so its content as far as where the world was is slightly delayed, but I listened back to it yesterday and it, of course, is still very, very topical. I have to say, I think this might be one of, this was one of the most fun episodes to record for sure. Um, It's really lovely when, uh, especially when you're doing podcasts remotely, when you connect with someone and you're just automatically right on the same page, you don't need to like get comfortable with each other or introduce each other to your uh, dynamic or your worldview. Um, and in this case, this was one of those and it was with three people. So that makes it even more rare, but I feel like we all just slipped into a groove right away and we're speaking the same language and it was really refreshing. Um, so this is with, uh, Joseph, Deb and Lisa. They are the hosts of this Jungian life, which is, um, a great podcast that explores basically any topic you can think of within, um, the framework of depth psychology and mysticism and um, basically Jungian thought, which is quite broad and uh, of which I really relate to and enjoy. Uh, A listener of the podcast who I've known for a very, very long time, um, or not very, very, that makes me sound like I'm ancient, uh, but who I've known from a long time pre- podcast world, uh, recommended their show to me. Um, they did an episode around something called Negredo, which basically related the time that we're in right now. I spoke about this on an intro to a previous podcast, um, maybe a month or two ago. Um, but basically relating this time that we're in right now to like a personal dark night of the soul. So that we're in a collective dark night of the soul. And if that's where we're at, how do we deal with that and metabolize that and process that and grow from it and individuate from it and, you know, suffer in the most, um, meaningful and productive way possible. Uh, so I was just really struck by that episode. It resonated with me so deeply and I went on to listen to a a bunch of their other podcasts and, uh, knew that I wanted to have them on the show, which I did. So, uh, looking forward for you, looking forward to you all hearing this conversation and definitely if you enjoy it please check out their podcast as well um before we get into the conversation um yeah I I know that I've spoken about how I think one of the main reasons I started this podcast was because I went for a very long time making choices that were inauthentic to me because I truly didn't see a world in which my true, authentic, individuated self could exist. I always felt that my ideas were were far more subversive than anyone who spent time with me. I felt like just my entire being offended people, threatened people. Um, And a quote that I mention often is Gabor Mate's about belonging and authenticity. And when we're faced with a choice between the two, we often choose belonging over authenticity because isolation and being alone is, you know, I think innately feels deadly to our bodies and to our species. And so, you know, we decide to just go with the group. We decide to get into a relationship that isn't necessarily the best for us because we don't want to be alone. And that makes a ton of sense, to be honest. But when you're a young person 
and you don't have very many examples of groups or communities of people that think like you or talk like you or embrace you for the weird subversive self that you are, I think it's super likely that you'll end up you know, spending time in the wrong social circles and getting into a relationship that isn't entirely right for you because you just want to belong. And that is the only place in which you see belonging existing. Otherwise, it's, you know, a life of no friends and isolation. And especially when we're young, I think, yeah, there's just no way we want to make that choice. You know, we want to be loved. We want to be liked. We, um, we want to belong. So, I made that mistake for sure throughout the vast majority of my 20s and it was so blatantly clear to me that that's what I was doing, maybe not exactly at the time, but prior to I would say 20 or so, like I always knew who I was. I don't look back and think that I've like become a different person in my 30s or something like that. You know, I look back to who I was between 14 and 20 and I'm the same person. The problem was that the person that I knew that I was back then was a person that I didn't think had a place to exist in the world. So I thought and rationalized for myself, well, I know who I am in, in, inside. I know what my opinions are, my feelings are. I know how I look at the world, but there's truly no place for me to be that. And so what if I can just be that internally, but live some different external life? So I was in this weird disassociative state where I knew who I was and what I believed in, but I was my inside and my outside were not linked up. I think my father, when I interviewed him on the podcast, said something similar. You know, he was a young gay man in New York City when he was 22 or so, and he didn't see a world in which he could have a mature, emotionally intimate relationship with a man at that age and not to mention all the gay people he knew were dying. And so he thought, well, I don't want to be alone for the rest of my life. I should marry a woman and try and make this work and have a family because that's how I'll belong. That's how I'll be a part of the world in a constructive way. There is no place for me to be who I am. And so I'm going to sacrifice who I am to belong. I guarantee I'm sure many of you have had this experience or know someone that has. I think it's insanely common in our 20s to do this. And I think it's because culturally and societally and within basically all public realms, um, this is this is what we're trying to do. We're, we're trying to get people to just be these robotic, conventional people who go to work and have kids and get married and take engagement photos and go to college. And it's just this cookie cutter bullshit that we don't need to think about. It's just prescribed for us. And hopefully someday most of us wake up to the fact that we've been walking blind and we've made choices that are entirely not our own and we get out of that flow as quickly as we can. Because I think obviously, I think many of us who are younger and look at our parents, like the farther you go down that sort of blind meaningless-ish path, the harder it is to get out of it. Now you have a house that you own. Now you have kids. Now you have this job security and you're older and you're afraid you're not going to be able to figure anything else out. You know, I've made these choices. I need to stay here. Hopefully we get out of that sooner rather than later. 
but a lot of people don't. And I really wanted to make this podcast be a resource to people that were just sort of before coming to this realization um, that maybe the life they want is not the life that was prescribed to them or the life that they chose at any given time. But also just to show that there is a community, there is a group of people in the world, many groups of people in the world who are just like you. And I'm very grateful for this one piece of technology, at least, that allows me, even if I'm not in someone's physical presence, to reach out to them across this technological divide and let them know that there are people like this. And it's so easy, you know, like, hey, do you feel alone? Send me an email. Like, maybe I'm coming through your state. We can meet up, which just leads to more connections and more community. And it becomes increasingly easier to accept that we can be ourselves in the world and that we can be surrounded by other people who are just like us and who accept us for who we are. And I'm saying all of this mostly because we all have a responsibility to each other to help people out of this pit that they can get stuck in. You know, there's so much out there in the world being posted on social media and just in the mainstream media. That's just this conventional, you're on this side or you're on that side. Here's, you can have this opinion or you can have that opinion. There are so few spaces available for people to actually be critically thinking, individuated, authentic people with their own opinions who want to live their own lives. And I just want to encourage Everyone who is living a life like that or who is inclined to, like we have a responsibility to younger people. We have a fucking responsibility to be brave and courageous enough to opt out of all of the bullshit and show other people that they can do that too. I can't be the only one, you know, like the podcasts you listen to can't be the only one. You guys are those people too, and you can do this in your own backyard and in your own community. You know, this is what I love so much about the WhatsApp group chat that I created for some of my patrons. You know, there's 30 of us in this group now that could connect on all of these things that normally we feel super isolated about. You know, we're surrounded by people celebrating July 4th, and there we are thinking, like, what the fuck is wrong with these people? This country was founded on genocide. Uh, and prejudice and how is it possible that these people around me are wearing flag shirts and lighting off fireworks and drinking beer and celebrating you know that can be a very depressing isolating experience but once you know that there are people even within your phone that you can connect to that feel similarly you don't feel as pressured to just do what everyone else is doing you know, you feel more inspired to speak up for what you believe in because you know that there are people that have your back in doing that. And if need be, you can escape your world, escape that world of beer drinking July 4th celebrators and get in a vehicle and go somewhere else. Find the other people that you, you know will embrace you and accept you with open arms. We can escape. There are a million places to do it. This is also why I love what people are just getting vans now, you know, how can I live cheaply and travel and be around people that I care about? It's a lot harder to like move to another city and find an apartment or buy a house or, you know, God knows you can just get in a car and go, you know, 
get a get one of those hatchbacks and put a sleeping bag in your trunk. Just get out. You know, there there will be people to accept you because they're desperate for it, too. You know, that's the thing I was. I'm not over here necessarily saying, I mean, now I have more friends than I did when I started this podcast. But when I started this podcast, I was totally isolated in an apartment by myself in California. I legitimately had no close friend who I felt like was really aligned with me and my life path and where I wanted to go. Not one. I was totally alone. And so my way of coping, my way of surviving was to start this podcast. And hopefully if I couldn't find those people out in the world, that they could come to me and we could find each other. And I'm super grateful, as I've said before, that this is working like a charm. Um, But you all can do that too. You know, if you're at a party with someone, especially someone who's younger, someone who's just coming out of their teens, connect with them. Like maybe you talking about things that they're thinking about but afraid to speak up about, maybe that could change the entire course of their life because they realize, oh, well, if there's this person that agrees with me, maybe there's another person. And wow, like this older person um, is feeling the same things I do. Like, fuck these people you know, friends of mine, I can, I can live whatever life that I want. It's just so imperative that we step up to the plate. You know, one of my favorite quotes is courage is not the absence of fear. It's fear walking. I get that being ourselves in a world that tries to prevent authenticity and individuation at every turn is frightening and scary. It's the definition of vulnerability. We're opening ourselves up to be rejected, ostracized, attacked, because that authentic self, that individuated self is threatening to those who don't have that. It's much easier for them to just go with the flow and do what they're told. And by you living the life that you want, you threaten that. You make them think that maybe they have another choice and they don't want to think about those other choices because then they'd have to make hard decisions. But that you can't let that stop you. I know so many people that just get stuck somewhere. They're somewhere in this phase of being themselves and then they get stuck, whether it's a relationship or a job or a house. They just cannot jump off the cliff. They can't let go of that one last thing. And then they get stuck there. You know, it's like they're walking over super glue and they just can't get their last foot off. Don't let that be you and don't let that influence someone else to get stuck. I very much trust and assume and know from those of you who have reached out to me and those of you who I have met, you guys are awesome and special and unique and you're walking insanely brave paths to carve out the life that you know is best for you and best for the planet and best for everyone around you, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. You have a responsibility once you get yourself out of the quicksand to help others get out too. Don't be afraid of that. That feels so good. It feels so good to be able to do this together as a group. And if you allow yourself to be stuck, you're not only not helping yourself, but you're not giving other people the opportunity to crawl out either. We have to set the right example. This is the perfect time to do it. We have all this space, all this opening to just walk out of the cage. 
the door is wide open. That's all I'm going to say about that today. Um, although this conversation that I have with uh, Joe, Lisa, and Deb definitely talks a lot about this process. So please enjoy. Um, as always, if you would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. There are different tiers where, depending on how much you're able to donate per month, you get access to a WhatsApp group chat. Um, I have officially announced a book club, which is really exciting. Um, basically, if you are a patron at the $10 level and above, you automatically get access to the book club. It's going to happen in August. I'm also totally fine with if you... Uh, want to be a part of the book club, but don't necessarily have enough money to be a patron long term, feel free to just go onto Patreon August 1st, become a patron at $10, and then you can cancel if you'd like. Um, but that way you just get access to the book club for that one month. If you have any questions about this or don't understand what I'm talking about or how to get access, please send me an email, anyakats at gmail.com, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S, or you can message me on Instagram or whatever. Um, Basically, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick a group of books that were recommended by um, people that I've had on the show. As you all know, for those of you that listen, I always ask at the end of the interview for the guest to recommend a book. So I will pick a few books within a certain theme. Um, August's theme is going to be the planet and um, the human role uh, that interacts with the planet and lives within and on the planet. Um so basically how we interact with the, the physical world around us. Uh, and I think the books that I chose were Braiding Sweetgrass, um, Call of the Reed Warbler, uh, Ishmael, and The Overstory. Those are the ones we're voting from. Once you become a patron, you're able to vote. I'm going to close the voting down July 10th, so that's only four days from now. Um, so if you want to actually do this and vote for one, head over to patreon.com slash sign up and vote. Otherwise, it's going to be picked. The book's going to be chosen by the people who are currently patrons. Um, I forget which one's winning now, but all that to say, we will pick whichever the winning book is. Um, I will give everyone the month of August to read it, and then we will meet uh, for a live Zoom call uh, at the end of August. We can all see each other face to face and talk about the book, um, which is obviously an amazing way to connect with one another, connect on a piece of writing that is meaningful and relevant and topical to all of our lives. And uh, if for any reason you can't make the live Zoom call, I will be recording it and posting it for patrons to watch after the fact. So in addition to the book club, like I said, there's a WhatsApp group chat that I still am limiting it to 30 people. I think there's still like two spots left. Um, so if you're interested in that, sign up ASAP uh, because I'm going to limit that to 30 people. And uh, there's T-shirts and playlists. I just actually completed a couple more playlists that I'm going to be posting. Uh, many more of those to come. And yeah, if you uh, don't have the money to support the podcast, I totally understand. Times are weird and tough. One thing you can do is just send an episode to one of your friends. Um, share the show with someone that you think would find it meaningful, uh, especially someone who you think is in danger of getting stuck or is stuck and they need some motivation and some community to help them realize that they have a right um, and a responsibility to live the life that they want. Um, also, you can go to the iTunes store. You can hit subscribe, scroll down past the list of episodes. 
leave some stars and a review if you'd like. This helps the podcast reach more people when they search for it uh, using specific keywords. And it also makes the podcast look more legitimate so that when I reach out to have guests on, um, that's the first thing they're going to do. They're going to go to that iTunes page and be like, is this worth my time? So all of those reviews and those stars help quite a bit. Uh, I am going to play you into today's episode with a song that very much reminds me of the beginning of finding my own community. Um, I heard this song before this, <laughs> but there was something about hearing this song in this moment. I spent a weekend with three or four people who were just so refreshingly like me and I just remember sitting in the sun and eating delicious food and thinking this is all I'll ever need like friends food and sun and I'll be good for the rest of my life and someone who was with us played this song which is uh, of course synchronistically called Friends uh, by Francis and the Lights and Bonnie Iver and uh yeah, every time it plays, I remember how meaningful and amazing that weekend was and how grateful I am to have found people like me, which include all of you. So enjoy the song, enjoy the conversation, and I will catch you on the other end. From a freeway trailer If you'd handled what I'd taken Separate loads, separate calls No fine line, don't have to be a dead rat Cause dead rat can go wrong Oh, we could be friends We could be friends
All right. So um, I am here with three people. This is the first time I've done a podcast with three people, which is um, a little overwhelming, but I'm excited about it. I'm glad that you're all on. Uh, and I think it's, well, in all contexts, but specifically this one, I'm looking forward to hearing all of your sort of differing ideas and perspectives about what we talk about. Um, as I mentioned to you, uh, and I'll just let my audience know, I, uh, came across your podcast actually from a podcast fan of mine who sent me your episode about Negrito. Um, and, uh, I resonated with that episode so tremendously, um, and uh, sort of coming out of my own personal dark night of the soul a few years ago. Mm. Um, and I, I was having these thoughts, you know, of, of course, as, as synchronicity works in this way, I was sort of like trying to think of why I was so frustrated or confused about my sort of negative feelings of like, let's get back to normal and let's, okay, this, we're the end here. Let's go back and no more social distancing. And I was like, why is this angering me so much? And I don't think it's just necessarily, you know, people will get sick. Right. And I sort of realized right before hearing your episode that I think part of what was going on for me was that I was sort of flashing back to my own experience and thinking like, okay, I'm done now, like time to get back to normal life and, and realizing how that doesn't work and um, sort of wanting to shake the collective and be like, no, we have to like stay in this as long as whatever tells us, you know, we have to. Um so, and then of course I sort of binge listen to some of the rest of your podcasts as well. Uh, so <laughs> I, I'm going to stop talking. I, I would love, um, because I think especially my generation, there's something about Carl Jung that's very appealing and interesting. And, um, having said that, I think a lot of us are unfamiliar really with who he is or what his work was. So whoever wants to take the lead, but I'd love if we, uh, you could give my audience just like a brief overview of um, who Carl Jung was and, and what are sort of the tenets of his worldview and, and version of his psychological outlook. Well, I'll start off. Carl <laughs> Jung was a Swiss psychiatrist. He was born in 1875. He became a colleague and collaborator with Freud. Uh, although by the time he met Freud, he was already well known in his own right and had made some major contributions. And then he and Freud broke. Uh, they 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 split, and uh, their friendship ended in uh, nineteen fourteen, I believe. And Jung kind of went his own way and very much developed his own psychological beliefs. And there's a lot of words that have entered the language as a result of his work. If you know the Myers-Briggs and introversion and extroversion, those are some of Carl Jung's ideas. He talked about archetypes and the collective unconscious. He talked about complexes, and he's also really well known for his work with dreams and dream interpretation. So that can maybe get us started. And then uh, Deb and Joseph, if you guys want to jump in. I, he he also is the first <clears throat> psychologist, uh, although Piaget and uh, Eric Erickson touched on this, but of the second half of life. And uh, this relates to his idea about the collective unconscious, which is a deeper uh, wellspring of psychic material common to all mankind that goes across cultures and back in time. And that the second half of life is a time when developmentally uh, 
where we are ready to reconnect with our deeper selves. And uh, Freud uh, said, no, you know, the unconscious is just the slag heap of all that stuff that happened to you, and we have to kind of uh, go through it and uh, sort of clean it all up. But for Jung, it was much more than that. It was the wellspring of fullness and wholeness and creativity And that wholeness, which is what he called individuation, was really uh, the the whole goal of of psychotherapy, was to become the person you were innately meant to be. And so it's a much deeper and more uh, sort of optimistic uh, growth that is embedded in Jungian psychology uh, than in any other form of psychology, as far as I'm aware. I think that Jung came into international prominence in the mid-50s, and then he finally died in 1961. And relative to his presence in the United States, a lot of the hippie movement, which was this counterculture movement, found Jung's writings, his appreciation of internal and extraordinary states. There was a lot of experimenting going on with young people, with psychedelics and meditation, explorations of consciousness. And Jung was the only person two generations older that met these young people and said, what you are doing is relevant and amazing and important and by the way, I've been exploring this myself in my own <laughs> paradigm and have been thinking about it for a long time and have something to say about it. I think when I'm working with young people, Jung's work offers a kind of doorway out of what has been expected from parents and culture and the prevailing paradigm into a world that is designed based on who you are in an authentic sense. And that's really the revolution that's changing, for instance, the landscape of work. Young people are showing up at Fortune 500 companies and saying, I'm not going to sit at a desk, (laughs) or or I'm not going to stay here for 40 years if you're not treating me in the way that I want. The young people are establishing a new paradigm from the inside out. And Jung was very much in favor of that. You know, I just want to say Joseph brought in that Jung was uh, of interest to the hippies, and then Jung was also of interest to the New Age movement. There's kind of a perennial quality to his ideas. And if you look back at some of the major books, some of them that are either written by him or were influenced by him have just been in print continuously since they were first published. I'm thinking uh, of Jung's influence on the mythologist Joseph Campbell, who wrote The Hero uh, with a Thousand Faces, and maybe some of the listeners know about The Hero's Journey. Campbell was very influenced by Jung. Uh, Jung was very interested in mythology and fairy tales. There was a big resurgence of interest in Jung in the 1990s with um, books like uh, Women Who Run With the Wolves by Clarissa Piccola Estes, and there were others as well. And, you know, maybe the last thing I'll just jump in and say is that Jung was very interested in meaning. 
he really felt that a lot of suffering, a lot of psychological suffering and symptoms came from a disconnection from a sense of meaning. And I think every generation is interested in finding out where that meaning is. And I also think uh, with the state of the world in so many ways, uh, what it is, is that people are newly interested in Jung uh, for the internal growth and development of which we are all capable. And uh, building on Joseph's point about people don't want to sit at a desk, of, is that what I do with my life? Is that is that really the meaning of my life? And is the meaning of my life to earn a six-figure salary? Or, or is there something more and deeper and internal? And, uh, you know, for Jung, the answer would be yes, and we we're also meant to be out in the world, um, but but not to be defined by the external world. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder, like, if you can expand upon this correlation to between suffering or just things that are hard to face, trauma and indiv- individuation. Um, and going back to what I said at the beginning, I do feel like there's a particular interest amongst my generation um, in respect to Jung's work. And I think, you know, I sort of look at my generation in, in terms of, uh, you know, in the le- through the lens of archetype. And I feel like, you know, we came of age when it was like, oh, okay, our classmate could kill us at school. And okay, people mm-hmm. fly planes into buildings. And okay, mm-hmm. the economy crashes like not once in a lifetime, but multiple times in a lifetime. And sort of like the veil, I feel like, was lifted for many of us uh, in a way that we couldn't ignore. And I think through that trauma, I see such a hunger to find meaning and to understand you know, what is our authentic self? Um, so I'm curious, you know, how Jung correlated those two different processes or similar processes. I was going to start with just the idea of suffering. And first I would say that not all suffering leads to an illumination. There's an old Gnostic fragment called the hymn of jesus and at the climax of this very dramatic um, recitation the character of jesus says if you learn how to suffer you will not need to suffer therefore i will teach you how to suffer Mm -hmm. and that phrase is always just vibrated through me so there's a way of suffering superficially a kind of substitute suffering so for instance maybe somebody is avoiding doing their assignments in university because they're spending so much time gaming online and then they spend an awful lot of time trying to solve the problem of excessive gaming And they're angsting about it, and their parents are fussing at them, and they're fighting back and saying, you know, you're just old-fashioned, and this is a new paradigm, and that could go on for years. And then nothing really changes in the personality, because 
there is something much deeper that is going on that would be more painful to suffer, like, I actually don't know how to connect with people, or that being in a room with real people is frightening to me and overwhelming. Hmm. And rather than facing that, I'll fuss with everybody about how many hours I'm gaming. So the first inquiry is, am I suffering the true problem? Mm -hmm. If we can find our way there, which sometimes is about radical honesty with ourselves, then we can begin to put our hands on what is undeveloped in our personalities and what might be required to bring that forward. And that is almost always an uncomfortable, if not really painful process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm thinking it comes to, uh, you know, what a lot of, of disappointment uh, for people uh, in, you know, who are still young of, this isn't how the world was supposed to be. There wasn't supposed to be a 9-11 or a financial crisis or this whole COVID thing uh, or a hundred other things that are going on. And uh, that there's a, a, a lot of uh, disillusionment of because uh, of how it's supposed to be, quote unquote, is different from this. And that's what the ego wants. You know, the ego wants it to be this way. And I have my plans, and I was going to do this, and then there's going to be that. And uh, no, it's it's something else. And how do we come to terms with the what is of this is what is. And life isn't what I wanted it to be or how I thought it should be. Um, it's this way. And what do I do with it now? How do I live my journey, the the real journey, the meaningful journey, the inner journey, and a journey in the external world of coming back to Joseph's point about what's the true problem of what happens when it's not what my ego thought it should be or would be? And, you know, I will say, I think, uh, you know, younger people have been, you know, really dealt some disappointments and some hard blows um, because things have changed. It's And it's uh, hard to believe that, oh, the world is your oyster. You can get out there and do your thing. Uh, there are real limitations today. I'm thinking about those uh, events that you mentioned and uh, how they play into fear and how fear can maybe become uh, an aspect of a generational experience and what that means. And, you know, although there's something very gentle and generous and humane about Jung's psychology, there is a way that he really galvanizes us to step out into the world and not be held back by fear In one of his books, he wrote that the spirit of evil is negation of the life force by fear. Only boldness can deliver us from fear. And if the risk is not taken, the meaning of life is violated. So I think he's very clear there 
that in spite of feeling fear, we need to step up to the challenge. Yeah, I, you know, I I gained a lot of uh, insight, I feel like, around my generation through the lens of astrology, um, being having it be the Pluto and Scorpio generation and Scorpio being all about you know, these topics, we don't necessarily want to talk about death, sex, birth, just darkness in general. Um, And I sort of started to see my generation as like, I don't really know if things will change for the better in my lifetime, but that maybe my generation, because we're so used to this trauma, are sort of the those who will walk our planet through those days, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and, And maybe like, how might we um, you know, metabolize that experience, uh, which I do think seems to me like on a, whether it's personal or collective, like how do we take this thing that happens to us and turn it into something productive, um, and good? Uh, I'm not sure if that makes sense, but yeah, well, there, there is that expression, you know, what, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. <laughs> and, and there's some psychological truth to that. You know, we talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, but there's also post-traumatic growth syndrome that sometimes after a trauma, we really, really grow a great deal. I mean, that that's something that's been empirically studied and I've certainly seen it and even experienced it. So going through something difficult and surviving uh, affects the whole personality. Anya, I was thinking about some of the other authors whose work's available to us who have survived terrible encounters. Something that people may be familiar with is Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Mm-hmm. And what Frankl comes to as an existentialist, is that there may always be enormous events that we cannot control personally, but we must take conscious, constructive control of what is in our hands and infuse those moments with meaning and with value. So you're absolutely right. As you're watching the television and and you're seeing the towers collapse down, and a nation is filled with helplessness, once the shock of that begins to recede and our nervous systems calm down, it comes down to building meaning in the circle of influence that one has. And that, and that alone can redeem our souls, can make us resilient, We're in an unprecedented time because of the connectivity in this culture and its unprecedented movement of images and sounds from all points of the globe right to your laptop. The human psyche is now learning about traumatic events instantaneously, where historically it might take you six months on the other side of the United States to find out that something happened in New York. And by the time it arrived, it had been reasonably or partially metabolized by the people who were telling the story. In a more ancient world in Europe, you might 
be dependent upon a troubadour to show up in your village to tell you that a war had happened, you know, just, you know, a hundred miles away. So that natural filtering process has been interrupted in a way that is unprecedented, in a way that the human psyche is still collectively trying to mature and find out what it's going to do with this new world of instantaneous traumatic feed. Anya, do you have any ideas? You know, speaking oh. as the voice yeah, of, of a generation. Of a generation. <laughs> How uh. are what do you notice in the collective of your peers in terms of coping and and being changed by this? Yeah, well, I definitely see so many of us. There was a funny moment. I was with some people my age the other night, and we were talking about, I think, self-awareness. And someone made an offhand comment like, well, who who is that insightful about themselves? And, and I said, millennials. <laughs> like, I think we, um, you know, I see not all of us. I think there are some that um, make it a point to do their best to avoid these types of processes, which isn't just millennials, I don't think, right? This is people at at all ages. Um, But I think getting to know oneself, which then I uh, feel like inevitably leads to trying to adapt a lot more simplicity into one's life. Um, So for example, I just bought some land in rural, rural Colorado and plan on building a house. It's a very, very small town. We have some friends that bought mm-hmm. land in the plot next to ours. Um, and just sort of like how this world, it's not working for us necessarily. It's too much. It's too big. The expectations are too high. Mm-hmm. There's no mm-hmm. way that we can have kids and stay healthy and cook good food and keep a garden and have a job. I mean, these, it's like, it's absurd um, what we're expected to do. And so how can we sort of pool our resources? Um, So, you know, in terms of this connectivity and the exposure, I think a lot of us are just trying to, you know, there's a, how can how can we be both aware and present of what's going on but also not become overwhelmed by it and how how do we affect change and at least for me i feel like i kept getting insight that if i was going to affect some sort of change that it was going to have to be in my backyard you know mm-hmm. like what can i i yeah. do um it- it it also sounds like uh, you you've got a myth cooking mm. here, and we all need one, and we all have one. We might not be aware of it, but it's there. We're in service to something, and my what I pulled out of that that may or may not fit for you is a community. Yeah. Uh, we'll do it together. Uh, some friends and I will buy plots of land in rural Colorado. And we'll do it together of, you know, with a, a cooperative, uh, um, not in a, you know, sort of formal organizational way, but mutually supportive relationships, community, 
and that the good life uh, is going to look a little different from, um, let's say, you know, uh, being a hedge fund manager. Right. Uh, you know, the myth of, of money and consumerism and wealth, financial wealth being the myth that's operating underneath that, like, like King Midas. Your myth is starting to take a little shape and it's relational. You know, you, you asked us this question starting with this notion of suffering and suffer comes from the Latin word meaning to bear, to carry, or to endure. And and there's something in that etymology that I think is interesting because it invites us to meet our suffering, to endure it, to carry it. And and when we do that, it becomes, uh, you know, we, we step toward our fate and we can be um, changed by our suffering. We can find uh, meaning and... and when suffering has meaning, it becomes soul-making. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the other tools that the human soul provides us with, Jung called the transcendent function. And whenever we are having a particularly intense experience, or maybe an overwhelming experience, a tragedy like a school shooting, our bodies, our minds, our souls are full of intensities. One of the ways that our own psychological lives are trying to save us is by taking those inner forces and shaping them spontaneously into unique images. It kind of stores them like a battery almost. And then we metabolize those experiences symbolically and slowly, often through sequences of dreams. So one of the one of the admonitions that I would say for your generation is to stop looking outside oneself to be provided with images or solutions, but to actually develop an interiority that allows us to track our spontaneously created internal images and to tend those in the same way that you would tend your garden in Colorado. It's that very personal mythology that develops, that allows people to metabolize things that they are experiencing internally and externally. Mm-hmm. And that can be something that's extremely private, and it might be something that's talked about at the breakfast table. Our dream-making function is trying to do that all the time, and simply keeping a dream journal can go a very long way to facilitating um, that metabolizing process. But to go in as a meditation and ask the psyche to give you an image for that day, for that moment, and to really investigate what it means and how it affects you, that is a medicine that's available to everyone. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking it extends, uh, you know, the theme of relationship to the relationship with one's self. 
And, uh, you know, I love that Joseph brought in dreams because, you know, I think of it very, you know, just sort of really in a down and dirty way as there's another whole part of you, me, everybody that talks to us several times every night. And tells us something uh, yeah. we didn't consciously know. <laughs> That's exactly. Uh, and uh, one of Jung's uh uh, followers and who wrote many books on her own right, Marie Louise von Franz said, "Psyche doesn't waste much energy. Doesn't waste much spit telling us things we already know." <laughs> so, so it's a sort of nice thing to be able to say, "Okay, you know, I would like to find out what the rest of me has to say about my situation, my life, my goals, uh, and all of the rest of it." Um. And it's possible. You know, you want what you can have. You can have an inner life. No one and nothing can stop you. And dreams are not the only path to that, but they are a nightly repeated uh, uh, series of events, so they're just so accessible. I'd love to expand upon this idea of meaning. And also I think as it relates to a lot of other um, concepts that Jung embraced, like synchronicity and the collective unconscious and dream interpretation. Um, how do, I mean, obviously you're a Jungian analyst, so you, you, you do this all the time, but I think there are a lot of people that don't understand how to, um, bring these two concepts of like psychology that feels very analytical and logical and belief and meaning, which feels sort of a lot more spiritual and um, not necessarily based in logic or, or science. I'm <laughs> using air quotes. Um, uh, something that's like tangible that we can touch or prove. Uh, and I want to tell this story briefly because I feel like it speaks to this in a way that really helped define it for me. Um, during this very dark night of the soul, Saturn return period that I was in, in my late twenties, I got divorced. I was moving out of a house that I owned, um, and had just renovated and I had to find a new place to live sort of suddenly. And, uh, the place that I ended up finding was this beautiful apartment in Topanga, California in the Santa Monica mountains. And I remember I was walking. It was a very long driveway um, up to the mailbox. And I had to walk like a good distance from my house to the mailbox. And all of a sudden, I was sort of hit with this sense of familiarity and realizing that uh, for a long time, I'd envisioned living in the sort of rural, beautiful place in which I had a long walk from my house to a mailbox. And I was in therapy at the time and I went in and I sort of told her about like the magic of this, that it's like, I feel like just through this vision that I had, that was very casual. I wasn't actually trying to initiate anything that this, like my, you know, dream came true in a sense. I sort of manifested this somehow. And, and she didn't disagree with me, but she brought in this interesting, like psychological, logical, analytical aspect to it, which was like, 
well, you got divorced and you knew what you wanted and you stalked this landlord on Craigslist and you, you Mm. made it happen. And (laughs) sort of like, it was this really fascinating correlation between, you know, let's say God or the universe and how that actually existed within me. So there was this direct relationship I felt like to my own psychological conscious process, but also this thing that felt like it just sort of had fallen into my lap. Um, So, uh, you know, I would love to like, under hear from you about how you reconcile those two things and whether you feel that they're opposed or inherently congruent. Um, because I think that is where I think some people are afraid to embrace young a bit because of this sort of unknown mystical aspect of so much of what he spoke about. <laughs> you, you know, um, I come right back down to to earth on that and start with, you had an experience. You know, we can wrap all kinds of words around it, that it was belief or it was, you know, a gift from God or some some magical mystery thing. But, um, you know, Joseph was talking about the transcendent function when things come together in a felt, experienced, known way. And it's not, they don't have to translate exactly into logic, but you knew something. You lived it. You experienced it. A moment of real wholeness, which is what I think the transcendent function is at, at, at rock bottom. And it felt meaningful to you. Exactly. It was pregnant with meaning. Yes. And so I'm, I move off the question of meaning uh, as a as a philosophical or cognitive concept uh, to an inner knowing um, that that this is where I'm going, this is how I want to live, you know, for now, and that something will guide me. My inner self will will guide me, but I don't have to think it through uh, because that's only part of us. We like to think we're a lot more rational as creatures than we really are. (laughs) And I think that's what Jung recognized. And so I I always sort of want to uh, uh, kind of take issue, I think, with uh, Jung as as a mystic. I don't think he really was. Everything he said, everything he wrote, especially in his memoir, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, he lived, he experienced yeah, he was a real phenomenologist. He mm-hmm. really just liked to deal with the experience and with the what is. Interestingly, one way of seeing his life and his work is this real effort to marry a scientific attitude with a more religious attitude. And that it runs like a thread through the Red Book and really throughout his entire life's work. He was trained as a medical doctor. He always liked to use the empirical data, but he he wouldn't dismiss something merely because it didn't fit with consensual reality or with the facts as we understood them. So one of the things that's honestly super fun about Jung is he wrote about ghosts, paranormal experiences, UFOs, near-death experiences, astrology, I mean, all this kind of great stuff. But 
but he, not in a way where it's overly mystical, but, but he also won't just discard the mystery of it, but he really just deals with what is. And, and maybe I'll just say, um, some Jungians, modern day Jungians are very interested in research. There is research that supports uh, psychodynamic therapy, but many of us don't really care too much about that. We're just more interested in what works for us and what works in the consulting room. Yes. And just to pick up on what Deb was saying, you know, it's one of the great things about a Jungian approach is it's not reductive. It doesn't try to say, well, it's just this. You're kind of epiphany about your long walk to the mailbox wasn't just <laughs> the uh, result of you having stalked someone on Craigslist or whatever. It, it was more than that. And so we're not trying to reduce something to its basic elements or kind of explain it away. We're always interested in creating more layers of meaning and more possible ways of understanding something. If I were to talk about the value of Jung's work and perhaps encounter disbelief around it. What I would do and what I have done is to encourage people to think of themselves as interior scientists, that you actually can have a scientific attitude relative to experimenting in the inner world. And one of the ways of conducting an inner experience is to adopt a frame of meaning and then to decide whether or not that improves the quality of your life. We may find that our own meanings evolve over a lifespan, but often we'll start out with a frame that has already been thought out, whether you decide that you're a Stoicist or a Jungian or an existentialist, that we find a frame in which to stand. And then we experiment with adopting that frame of reference and saying, I think do things feel better. Do they seem to work better for me? And this is in the realm of hermeneutics. So coming down to the experience of walking to the mailbox and this landed perception that you had created this world that was simmering somewhere in the unconscious. Jung had a number of frames of meaning that people could experiment with to see if it enhanced the experience of their lives. One rather provocative frame of meaning, which is consistent with many of the ancient mystery schools and mystical systems, is that what if there was one unbroken field that extended from the most rarefied, subtle, spiritual, and interior perceptions and traced directly down into manifestation? What if that was true? What if the image of the farm or the place that you were living actually was being born in your psyche, inner life, at the same time as that physical structure was being built 
or being crafted somewhere else in the world. And in a rather mysterious way, you were co-experiencing the creation of something on a very, very deep level. Mm. And then when you arrived, that seed idea was able to surface and become available to your conscious life. It's a very fascinating idea that you are you are connected to all points in space if you are able to descend deeply enough into your own unconscious substance. It's actually not a new idea, but Jung was experimenting with it in his own psyche and he was observing it in the lives and psyches of other people. And when he was working with a theoretical physicist, Wolfgang Pauli, he was hoping that modern theoretical physics would provide paradigms to try to explain this phenomena that he was observing. He was consulting with a client who was telling a dream about a very exotic insect, which would never have been found in Switzerland. And Jung turns around and he hears this weird buzzing noise and he goes over to the window and that bizarre insect, which would be natural thousands of miles away is, you know, bumping into, you know, his window. Uh, that, moments like that astounded him, rightly so. And so he tried to create a frame of meaning that seemed to enrich his sense of the world. And if that frame of meaning didn't for someone, well, they can dispose of it. But to have the courage to experiment with a frame of meaning, which means we have to abandon the folly of finding an absolute truth. Which is more important, the truth or meaning? Yeah, that's interesting. I'm I'm curious too, like what, I feel like, isn't there a story about Freud and Jung where Freud asked for some sort of proof of something, like the book would have to fall off the shelf or something like that, and then it did, and he's like, well, he made some excuse for it after it happened. Um, like, I'm w engaging the idea around, like, the human shadow. Like, what, where do you feel like our psyche is opposed, or why are we sometimes opposed or afraid of finding meaning or afraid of embracing something that's potentially inexplicable? I think it has to do with ego development. Hmm. That Jung theorized that when we were first born, we don't really have a, an ego in a discrete way that we would imagine. And it's those instant experiences we have that the limits of my body are over here in the crib, and as I flail my hand over against the rail of the crib and we go, ow, is the first idea of me and not me. And the idea of me and not me continues to refine um, for, for the first, you know, two or three decades of one's life. So in order to concentrate and refine awareness, there are a lot of things which we are tasked with not knowing so that we can become structured and develop a certain kind of toughness and industriousness and focus and tolerance and vigor and rigor. 
it's often later in life that we begin to be introduced to the thin spaces, is what they say in the Celtic world. The places between the worlds which are questionable. Now, sometimes young people go on that adventure prematurely. It's not uncommon for me to have, you know, a 17-year-old in my practice who's tripped on eight grams of psilocybin mushrooms, spent an entire day not knowing who they were and having pictures walk off the wall and start talking to them and finding that actually that was a highly traumatic experience, Mm. that the thinning of the veils didn't happen at the right time. They needed to not be overly influenced by those things at 17, for instance. And a lot of my work there is closing the veils down and having people shore up the tonicity of the ego, which again is by not knowing and by focusing on what the senses are reporting and adapting to them. Mm. So some of those defenses are appropriate, but I'm not knowing that because it's not good for me to know it yet. You know, Jung talked about what he called the religious function of the psyche, by which he meant our innate uh, need to be related to something larger, to have a relationship with the transcendent. And he posited that this was a basic human drive, that this was an instinct like uh, the instinct to eat or to mate even, was to make meaning. So I think that there's a way where we all want to embrace something mysterious, something larger, uh, to have a relationship with the infinite, as he called it at one point. Um, the problem is in our modern day is we don't have these systems of meaning, the traditional religions that for many centuries kind of worked to give us that. Now, for most of us, we don't find meaning in a traditional church, for example. So we may find meaning in becoming vegan or in becoming a an adherent to a political party or to um, maybe seeking out uh, meaning in astrology or, or any number of other places. And that can be a little bit dangerous if we're not aware of what we're doing, because then we're placing this big burden of, of needing to find meaning in these uh, secular institutions or ideas that haven't kind of been smoothed out over the course of the centuries to be these robust mm-hmm. containers for community and transcendence. It's not like I'm one who would be an apologist here necessarily for um, traditional religion, although, you know, I think that they obviously have a strong positive uh, attributes. But um, j- just to say that, you know, we're all worshiping something. You know, y- you can't not worship uh, someone once said, and I think that that's true. We we often just don't know what it is we're actually worshiping. Yeah, we don't. And I think it comes just from uh, the nature of our being, that we're born, you know, very small and powerless, and uh, we need to belong to caring others. 
And then I think we, you know, we quote, grow up, unquote, <laughs> and look out at the world and go, oh, my God, the world is, what do I do now? Uh, um, and we want the caring to be a cohesive a cohesive, healthy world that will welcome us, that will provide that kind of containment, protection, belonging, and meaning. You know, so when, when we look out and things seem to be falling apart, uh, people can redirect that quest for meaning into just what Lisa said, a political party or uh, a way of eating or any one of a gazillion things. Um, but the real question is, you know, what really supports us? What really supports us? And do we project it outward into a, a lifestyle or a belief system, um, uh, uh, something like that? Or, or do we just dare to say, wow, what is it from within? And I go back to your time of walking to the mailbox that's what supports you. There it was. And, uh, you know, what Lisa said before of Jung being a phenomenologist, of we know those moments when we're, when we're whole and when we're alive and when we feel met. And they don't come in nice, tidy, sort of um, boxed-up versions of, you know, that the meaning of your life is your career and you have this kind of a career and a title or a salary or, you know, it does, it's not really, you know, so there's opportunity in a way here, I think, for uh, younger generations um, to, to because some of the external world structures aren't there to go right for the gusto and the gold within because you're forced to. Linking into the idea of the religious instinct, worship, and what I would, would reframe it as devotion, that there's a time in our life when we have a kind of instinctive devotion. And that instinctive devotion acts as a veil that titrates unconscious intensities. And and for instance, I think this happens in a lot of gaming environments. There is a mythology in the game that uh, a young person might be totally aligned with in their imagination that provides a level of meaning, but also a level of protection because they absorb a system and images through which the unconscious can communicate relatively safely. But something happens, and I think you were alluding to this for yourself, where the call to devotion, the call to spirituality becomes conscious rather than instinctive. And one of the things that I often see is people are drawn to cosmologies. And astrology is a cosmology. Because astrology, which now has come to feel safe in our culture. It's known enough that it doesn't feel excessively transgressive, that one could safely learn about it. It's an inherent system that presupposes that there is a relationship between the macrocosm and the microcosm, that the planets 
whatever they are intrapsychically, have a direct relationship to my inner planetary system, such that outer movements affect inner movements. That core belief that astrology holds begins to create a dialogue and a belief system that the inner and the outer are in fact corrected, connected rather. And it starts first as a discipline, but that discipline is driven by an internal spark. You have to sit down and learn a lot of facts, a lot of very structured ideas to become an astrologer, to build a library of images and thoughts. And in the beginning, interpreting a chart or a transit is a kind of complicated um, thought process that then begins to be informed by intuition. On a deeper level, mystics like Rudolf Steiner, who is a German mystic and a contemporary of Jung in timeline, claimed that if one could go deep enough into one's unconscious mind, we could discover that in that realm, the planets are in fact alive and conscious and influence our consciousness because of that. So one can read about astrology, one can study astrology, one can become intuitive about it, and perhaps even one can drop into an imaginal world and encounter the ancient gods <laughs> from which the planets were named and have these progressive layers of initiation into these unconscious living myths. But the call to start and prepare the field by providing a frame that allows for that is, I think, the beginning of the call. I, I wonder what your thoughts are about your call to astrology. Hmm. Um, yeah, well, I mean, it, it definitely correlates to this concept of meaning. Um, I... I didn't actually have any idea what spirituality was. I was raised Jewish, but reformed and the whole thing didn't make a ton of sense to me, but I did have a thread through my life that I recalled certainly during this time of when things get really hard, what will I do if I don't believe in anything? Uh, and I remember thinking, like, you better figure this out, because if things get really challenging, how are you going to survive that? Um, but that was just, you know, I, I, I sort of describe a lot of these things as like floaters in my eye, sort of. They're, you know, they're there somewhere, but I can't touch them or define them or even really consciously talk about them. Um, but within weeks, I think... Uh, when I decided I was going to get a divorce and I left my house and I moved in with my mother and I was just in, I was also dealing with all these health issues, like everything all at once. And I mean, within a number of days, I remember feeling this is the worst pain I've ever been in. This is the absolute most terrible time of my life. But for whatever reason, I know I'm supposed to be here. And I don't mm. know what, I don't know why I, I don't, there was just, there was no shame or denial or 
feeling of displacement. Like it just felt like, okay, here we are. Like, this is what we're doing now. Um, and I had a friend who had a family friend who she would always refer to this woman, Belinda, who I guess was an astrologer, but also did like psychic readings. And I remember sort of just casually mentioning to this friend, like, I need a Belinda in my life right now, because I don't know what's going on. This is so terrible. So I spoke to Belinda, and she had asked for my astrology chart. And I really didn't know anything about astrology aside from my sun sign. Um, And she just briefly mentioned over the phone that I was in this period of time called the Saturn return, and then started talking a little bit about it. And then I went online and I started searching around, like, what is this? What does this mean? And I feel like through astrology, like the things that I was learning through that practice felt like the most resonant things ever. Um, And I'm a very curious person by nature, I think. And um, I just really like, if I'm going to do something, I do it all the way. If I, if I'm going to learn something, I need to know all of it. Um, So it just took me down a rabbit hole and I started listening to podcasts and, um, got engaged with an apprenticeship. And interestingly, I mean, I think as some context for some of these questions that I'm asking is actually that being engaged within the astrological community was just as much meaningful as it was disturbing for me. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I think, I mean, you know, it's this idea of like there, the lack of regulation is beneficial, but also really dangerous. There's a lot of people practicing astrology and teaching astrology who have clearly not done their own work. who are completely unaware of their own shadow. Um, the narcissist, like narcissist fawn dynamics run rampant in a way that I don't think it was just, it was, it was <laughs> meaningful in a spiritual sense and in a, archetypal sense and a mythological sense, but it was fascinating to me how the experience also informed this total, what seemed like a totally separate area of my life, which is one that always um, was interested in ideas around gender and sexuality and, and power. Uh, So it was complex. I mean, that, Mm -hmm. that whole period of time was like, you know, and and not, it was an initiation. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And giving astrology mm-hmm. readings, I think I had a knack for it in a way and I felt comfortable doing it, but it became very clear very quickly around like the danger of projection and like my, the, the filter through which I was providing information. And it was, it was overwhelming. Um, and I think really informed my podcast too, which was like, I feel I've always sort of fallen into positions of leadership and through that experience recognized how important it was going to be for me to be honest and authentic and walk the talk and not have a podcast or a public platform as some sort of ego driven narcissistic way to avoid something, I suppose, which was Mm -hmm. like unbelievably Mm -hmm. prevalent in my experience. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, 
picking up on that, you started off that story with saying here you were sort of really sitting in the shit, you know, divorce, health issues, like everything had fallen apart. And you just had the sense of this is awful. And I'm supposed to be there. I'm supposed to be here. And that brings up this, this concept that I think kind of runs through a lot of Jung's thought, which is this idea of telos. Hmm. That there's there's a goal, there's a direction, there's somewhere where there's there really is somewhere we're meant to be going. Mm-hmm. That life has this arc. We may not be aware of it consciously, but some deeper part of us knows where we're supposed to be headed. And that sense that we can feel that within ourselves. Sometimes we can feel it. We can know that some part of us knows what's meant to be happening. Or we look back after uh, 10 tumultuous years and see where we are and think, I never would have been here if that other thing hadn't happened, but this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. And that connects us with a sense of meaning. It's like there's some kind of order to our lives that we can't divine from an ego standpoint alone but we can rest into these deeper layers of ourself and perhaps get in touch with it or at least trust that something is unfolding the way it ought to. Mm-hmm. I'm so aware of the meaning that you made of that dark night of the soul of, uh, that takes me back to our earlier thought about suffering. I mean, what you could have made the meaning uh, look like is, gee whiz, um, this is so unfair. I really didn't deserve this. Um, you know, why is life uh, kicking my butt so much? But instead, the meaning that you made, and again, I think that's the wholeness, those moments of wholeness of somehow, some way, I'm supposed to be here. And and then you just were in that place more fully of like, okay, if I'm here, then, you know, if I'm going to slog through the swamp, then, okay, um, I'm going to really look around and notice what's going on, and I'm going to be in the swamp. And I, I think that's uh, huge. I mean, I think that's how how meaning kind of works is what do we do with it? The it uh, called life, stuff, <laughs> events, feelings, uh, personal growth opportunities. Um, you know, we used to, uh, when I had earlier gestalt training, uh, we used to call them FGOs, fucking growth opportunities. <laughs> and, oh, here's another FGO. Um, <laughs> Uh, but and I think Lisa's onto it that it's going to take me somewhere. The telos, there's an arc. It's go. I'm, it's going somewhere. We hope. <laughs> <laughs> I think in the best possible world, our suffering becomes an engine, and that engine fuels what's next. Yeah. Suffering has an enormous amount of energy in it, enormous, which is why it's so powerful. And if we can see it, as everyone has been saying, as something that is driving us through a terrain 
that we probably would not have chosen on a conscious level mm-hmm. that would go a long way to helping people grow. And often what is at the bottom of these painful transformation are actually capacities that we are uncomfortable acknowledging. By the time we reach our late 20s, the time of the Saturn return, we have been colonized by systems and thoughts, beliefs, attitudes that have been absorbed by every system that we've participated in, which can be very benign, can even be somewhat helpful, doesn't have to be negative at all, but it's alien. It's given us, as we said earlier, a structure and a firmness to our identity, which we needed in order to navigate. But what begins to stir right around the the time of the Saturn return are the latent authentic seeds in the soul. And energy begins to be pulled away from the old structures, and it begins to gather around these deep, authentic internal images. And that transition of losing energy around what was familiar and the gaining energy of something that feels unprecedented but is in fact closer to the center of your being is experienced as painful. I had I had one hell of a Saturn return myself, so <laughs> I, um, I, I, I'm, I hear you. My uh, second Saturn return uh, started in the middle of April. So having fun yet? (laughs) I feel an incredible intensification happening inside of me. Um, The shit hasn't hit the fan around me yet, but it's just a matter of time. I'm sure. I can, I think mine's come a couple years early. Is that possible? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's different for people. Some people it's right at 56. I'm 58. You know, it's depends on the elliptics of the Mm. astrology. Mm. I do want to ask you a question, um, Anya. As as a voice for the millennial um, consciousness, what do you think millennials are most angry about? Hmm. I think that I f- well, I don't like to speak for people, but at least for myself, I feel like there's this sense that we were lied to, Mm. um, Mm. which I think has existed for me both personally and, and collectively as well. Um, you know, I, I always, I tell this story frequently because I feel like it informed my worldview, but I, on a personal level, but which I think exists, um, in, you know, paralleled to a lot of my other sort of peers experience. Um, so my father is gay. My, my parents were married in a quote unquote monogamous heterosexual marriage. And my dad, um, you know, my dad was in his early twenties. He didn't really know who he was and really wanted to just be straight and have kids because that would be a lot easier. And it's the late, you know, mid to late eighties. And, um, finally realized during his own Saturn return during my birth that he was living a false life and didn't want to pass shame onto his children. And, 
Um, anyway, there was a, my parents decided not to tell me, uh, that my dad was gay until I asked, which, oh my gosh. yeah, which was an interesting strategy <laughs> given to them by their therapist at the time. So what no. ended up ha- happening was that they got divorced when I was five. Um, but I didn't, I didn't find out about this till I was 10. But meanwhile, in the five years that uh, transpired between this, my dad was living with a man. I saw my dad holding hands with a man. I mean, a committed relationship. I loved this guy, but I had, it didn't even occur to me to ask because I had no framework for exactly. understanding, but it was different, right? Until you have labels and boxes, boxes and concepts. So I found out uh, I was I wanted to be an actress for a lot of my life. And I was in a show and me and several of the other children were in some guy's dressing room as the lead of the show. I was 10 and he had a picture of himself on his mirror of him holding hands with another man. And all of the kids that I was with were like, Oh, he's gay. He's gay. And immediately I, I, I wanted to say in front of all these kids, Mm -hmm. wait a second, like, no, I mean, all I knew about gay was bad. I didn't understand what it was, but I knew my dad held hands with another man. I was like, well, this can't be. But I sort of somehow intuitively knew to keep my mouth shut. Um, anyway, so I eventually found out because I, I talked about this story. I actually had asked my mother and she said, yes, your dad is gay. And my dad lived around the corner from us Um And my mom was like, okay, I'm going to have your dad come over now. They had like a box full of books and videotapes to sort of help me learn about all of this. And okay, I'm going to have your dad over. And I didn't want him to come because I was like, okay, so my dad's gay, gay is bad. Like I literally, in my 10 year old mind thought that he was going to walk in the door with horns or like that, that he would walk in and I would realize there was something I missed about him. That he was actually this terrible but fascinatingly, so he walks in the door and he's just my dad. He's the same guy that I have a very good relationship with my father. Like we were very, very close. He was like such a hero in my eyes. So at 10, I had this understanding of like, okay, but wait a second. If gay is bad, but my dad is good, like what else is the world lying to me about? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So I, I feel like that, you know relating that in a more broad sense to my generation it's like it's it's sort of impo- it's been impossible for us to believe the bullshit you know oh this is the type of job you need and the relationship you should have and the home and the family and the house and it's like uh i'm not so sure it's it's you know i don't really think that that's true and i think then in that context, we're forced to do this. You know, I, I know so many people who have had to like separate themselves from their families, their childhood friends. Like there's this extraction that has to occur from this myth or this lie um, in order to create one's own version of truth. Um, and that's, yeah, full of a lot of anger and resentment and animosity. I think where we often end up, hopefully, is a feeling of, at least for me, I feel like 
like I was given an opportunity, the trauma reduced enough and the opportunity expanded enough to where I could make this work for myself in a way that let's say my mother or her mother could not. Um, but the, yeah, the, the, the weight of on my generation, I feel like of having to sort of come to terms with so many lies and ancestral traumas is, um, you know, it goes back to this community. Like there's no way to do this. I remember Googling at the beginning of this experience for me, like how to cope with the worst time in your life. Like literally I typed that into Google because I just didn't, I didn't have any tools. I didn't know what to do. Um, and so that was part of the podcast for me was like, if I can just be that resource for someone else, then that wow. has to be valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you you made meaning out of your exactly. suffering. Yeah. And and you you turned it into a gift and a resource for other people. Yes. So if I think about this in a broad sweep that those who are lied to discover they've been betrayed, that fuels the strive to be iconoclasts, to break down or at least refuse the icons that have been offered. That leads to a feeling that you have nothing to inherit from the elders. There is no inheritance, inheritance of philosophy, of worldview, of advice, and that you now must create a whole world of meaning. But what I would submit to your generation is there is a vast difference between the elderly and the elders. Mm -hmm. The world is full of elderly who are uninitiated and are simply repeating the stories, the paradigms. But the elders in the community, which Jung was recognized for in the late 50s and 60s, that he was a true elder that could speak to broader realities that enriched and provided universal paradigms. And perhaps that's created a space in your generation to be open to Jung again, mm-hmm. and perhaps to Jungians in general. Yeah. That's really lovely, the difference between the elderly and elders. And and I would also say, in a way, this is not new for your generation. Uh, that one of the things that we have to do, and it's one of Jung's uh, teachings, is that it falls to all of us to differentiate ourselves from cultural and familial rules, values, norms, customs, traditions. Um, you know, it's very nice if you can just sort of move right into you know, all of those things in an unquestioning, safe way. But then we never leave the garden. Uh, we, we're just sort of living sort of in, uh, in, on an automatic pilot, as it were. And uh, it does fall to us to say, wait a minute, uh, what, what, what are, where am I? How do I see this more clearly? And you very, you know, rightly bring up and when that happens, lots of feelings come up as well. 
So you're talking about an experience of betrayal and disillusionment. And I think if I think I'm building on what Deb and Joseph both were saying, that there's a way that being betrayed and disillusioned launches you into your own life and into your own adventure and invites you to take responsibility for your journey rather than just receiving mm-hmm. wisdom whole cloth without questioning it. And I'm, there's a, a, a wonderful quote by the novelist Robertson Davies. He says, one always learns one's mystery at the price of one's innocence. So that when we are betrayed and disillusioned, that's when we find our own mystery. Mm-hmm. What I think is interesting in your generation, what I find compelling and so beautiful uh, amongst the millennials that I have the privilege to work with, is that the tools that you have at your disposal to create your world are unprecedented. Mm. And some of the young people I'm working with are doing things and creating things that astound me. That just, I'm just gobsmacked. I don't even know what to say other than that's amazing. You know, <laughs> yeah. sounds so ridiculous, but it's I'm just my eyes are as big as saucers. Just hearing what people are bringing up and manifesting, uh, being freed from the paradigms of another generation, it is the most exciting thing and it fills me with hope it really does it fills me with hope about what the future could look like and what is being shaped that the millennials are an extraordinary generation and many of us the baby boomers and perhaps older really are looking to you to live these extraordinary new paradigms that are being brought forward Yeah, I, I really do think it speaks to, you know, just the potential or possible meaning and um, a positive aspect of trauma and hard times. You know, I, it was hard for me within my own experience not to feel grateful um, and like, you know, that I recognize that a lot of other people don't get this kind of experience. And I, I don't know, had I not been handed that time in my life, like maybe I wouldn't have come to the realizations that I had, or I wouldn't have been connected to this sort of collective knowing or feel such reverence for the planet. I mean, during the worst Mm -hmm. times was Mm -hmm. when I felt the most grateful Mm -hmm. and alive which is hard to just tell someone you can't, you know, it's hard to say that or to teach that um, without experiencing it firsthand. Mm -hmm. What you just said is so beautiful. That's extraordinary, but you can bear witness to it because you can speak with authority having lived it. Mm. And that has power. I hope so. (laughs) um so i feel like i could have a whole other conversation with all of you but i'm very into like thematic podcasts and keeping things sort of cohesive in their own message so i feel like i don't want to 
go off into a whole other topic of conversation. So I might have to invite you back to do that. Um, <laughs> We'd be but, happy to. <laughs> but before we go, I would really like to know um, one of my heroes, uh, Larry Kramer, died today. And I always... When, when anyone, whenever anyone asks me that question of like, who could you have dinner with like dead or alive? I'd always say him and always would think about what type of questions I would ask him. So I'm curious if Jung was alive today for each wow. of you, whether there would be a question that you would really love to ask him. Um, and what might that be? I honestly think that I would ask Jung to analyze one of my dreams. Mm. I don't know that I would want to absorb a new philosophy from him, but what I would love to experience is a deeper understanding of myself through his profound depth of understanding other people. And that is a rare thing to find these days. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, I once was speaking with a colleague who said that Jung purportedly had something to say about what he thought might happen in humanity's future regarding specifically um, nuclear weapons. Um, and uh, I'd be curious to know what he sees for the future of humanity. I'm, I'm worried it would be a little grim uh, between climate change and uh, the possibility for nuclear holocaust yeah. and, and other things. But, um, you know, he had an uncanny ability to sense what was moving in the collective. He had an extraordinary experience before the beginning of World War One, in which he basically uh, had a kind of vision of... Europe just being covered in a sea of blood, didn't know mm. what it was happening. He thought he was going crazy. And then he found, you know, when World War One broke out, it was like, oh, okay. <laughs> no, I wasn't going crazy. I was just having a vision. Mm -hmm. So I'd really like to know, what is he, what is he, where does he think we're headed and what advice would he have for us? Mm -hmm. I, I think my wish is uh, along the same lines as, as Lisa. Um, there, there was a man uh, named Max Zeller, who went to see Jung after World War II, and and he had uh, brought Jung this dream, uh, and the dream was that Max Zeller had was of uh, lots and lots of people working at building the pillars of a temple. It was vast; everyone was working on a pillar, and that Jung said, "Yeah," he said, uh, "That is the temple that uh, people are working on all around the world." You know, believe me, in China and Russia and everywhere. But it will take um, something like 600 years to be built. But I would want to know from Jung, of what will this temple look like? What, what, uh, what's it about? Where, where way down the line might humanity be going? And, uh, you know, what will those new meanings and depths of soul uh, look like? Because my hope would be, you know, and I think lots of us are doing it, that maybe we could speed that process up a little bit. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Um, okay. And one more question is that I always ask all my guests uh, before I wrap up, if they could recommend one book to the audience, what might that be? I compile 
a list of all of them for my patrons. So this can be anything having to do with our conversation, um, having to do with Carl Jung in general, or just a book that was really profound and meaningful to you in your life. I'll go first. (laughs) (laughs) Just read Memories, Dreams, Reflections, Jung's autobiography. There, I took the low-hanging fruit. (laughs) (laughs) I I certainly can second that. And Jungians read that book every two or three years, and we find something new in it. Um, You know, but the book that, that I have gone back to again and again for Jungian theory and also for an understanding of trauma is a book called The Inner World of Trauma by Donald Calshed. That's K-A-L-S-C-H-E-D. And I used it as a a sort of the nexus of uh, how I could understand Jungian theory and how human suffering works in the psyche. Um, He uses fairy tales and lots of things, and that's been a companion for me for 20 years. I think for me, I would reach back to a more seminal experience before I had discovered Jung, I was raised in a fairly chaotic home. And when I was 17, I discovered a book called The Mystical Kabbalah by a uh, 19th century author named Dion Fortune. And I spent years reading this book over and over again and integrated an entire system of philosophy and cosmology that reordered my soul and prepared me to do Jungian work much later on. But that was an extraordinary medicine to me and a discipline. And I would say that's probably been the first and one of the most important books that I discovered as a young person. Thank you. Um, And where can people find more about you uh, and your work and your podcast? This Jungianlife.com. You can go to any of your podcasting apps and just type in this Jungian life and subscribe to us and you'll meet us every week in our conversations about everything under the sun. (laughs) Right. We're, we're on iTunes, we're on Spotify, we're on, you know, most of the big uh, podcast aggregator apps. We have a Facebook page, we have an Instagram (laughs) and we have a Twitter. So if you just look for us, this Jungian life at any of these places, you'll find us. We are not hard to find. (laughs) (laughs) I'd also just, I'd like to mention that we are putting together a dream course that mm. one part of our podcast is demonstrating dream analysis, which has really sparked a lot of interest for people to analyze their own dreams. And in the next several months, we'll be coming forward with an online dream course. So if people found their way to our website and joined our mailing list, we'd be able to stay in touch with them. Yeah, it's going to be a 12-month course that will teach people the basics of working with their own dreams. That's amazing. Yeah, I've I've often tried to figure out where to start in all of that. Um, so maybe I know now. <laughs> well, thank you all. There there are some conversations I feel like I have that make me just feel so um, happy and grateful to have this podcast and um, that really sort of confirm for me that I'm on the right path in all of this. So thank you for being one of those conversations. This was really oh, thanks. Thank we, re- you we really enjoyed it. Yes. Yes. Thank you for having us. 
Hello again. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that conversation. If you enjoyed what Joe, Deb, and Lisa had to say, I highly recommend checking out this Jungian Life. They have tons of episodes archived, uh, so you can binge your heart out. Um, again, if you'd like to support the show and get access to things like a book club and a WhatsApp group chat and t-shirts and all sorts of fun things, you can head over to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S. Or if you want to do something that's fast and free, you can go to the iTunes store, hit subscribe, scroll down, leave some stars and a review. It helps a lot. Uh, other than that, share an episode with your friends. Send this show to someone you think might enjoy it. So, so grateful for all of you out there. Love connecting with you in all sorts of ways. Um, I am still on the road, going to be spending a bit more time in Oregon and then probably heading into Idaho and Montana uh, for the rest of July and August. If you would like to meet up in a responsible, socially distant type of way around a fire and you have some land somewhere or a swimming hole that you'd like to recommend, uh, please reach out to me. You can do it on Instagram at Anya.Cots or uh, emailing me AnyaCots at gmail.com. Would love to connect with you. Don't be shy. Please reach out. Um, everyone that I've met that listens to this podcast has been amazing. And I would love, 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 love to meet more of you. So uh, what am I going to play you out with? I am going to play you out with Japanese ceremonial tea, in parentheses, interlude by the Electric Sons, which uh, basically just quotes Alan Watts and um, while playing music behind it. Uh, and I just think it's very, very topical to this conversation and what I was talking about in my intro. We are doing things wrong. The world is doing things wrong. And it is up to us individually and collectively to change that and to help other people not repeat the same mistakes and help our world crawl out of this big black pit that we have found ourselves in. So enjoy. Talk to you next time. Thank you so much for being here, as always. This is Japanese ceremonial tea. It's good on a cold day. See, our problem is we don't really know how to stop. We've got something started and we see it's going in a wrong direction. And I think the difficulty is, to borrow an old Chinese saying, that when the wrong man uses the right means, the right means work in the wrong way. In other words, there's something wrong with the way we think. And while that is there, everything we do will be a mess. Now, what is it that's wrong? Now, as far as I can see, the basic mistake is that we've invented this wonderful system of language and calculation. And that it is at once too simple to deal with the complexity of the world also, we are liable to confuse that system of symbols with the world itself, just as we confuse, say, money with wealth. A lot of people are in business to make money instead of wealth. When they make the money, they don't know what to do with it. And I wonder we feel cut off from everything, alienated, frightened of life and death. So what has to happen is, we have to come back to a of our own life, which is the way we really are, an organism functioning in terms of the whole environment, with the whole environment, 
instead of this funny little separate personality. But how are we going to do that? You can't transform yourself. You can't make yourself sane. You can't make yourself loving. You can't make yourself unselfish. And yet it's absolutely necessary that we be that way. If we are going to hand over the direction of nature to nature, it's absolutely necessary. I'm not going to say what we should do, but simply that before we think of doing anything in this critical situation, we realize the completely illusory nature of the beings that we think we are and get back again to the beings that we really are, which includes all this outside world no longer left outside.